We continue to uh, focus this early part of 2022 on our Lord Jesus Christ, awaken our hearts to his mission. We've been looking at Jesus himself. We've been looking at what is the whole, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at what is the church. And this week has been focused on really the mission of Jesus. The, when you begin to realize what Jesus has done for you, you can't help but begin to think, well, what what do I do with this? And a big part of this is the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the mission that he has given to us. And, and one of the great theological truths that I have ever, like, ever understood is Jesus did not do this mission alone, but the Holy Spirit committed himself and all that he is, all the resources that the Holy Spirit has, is it's committed to the ministry and mission uh, completion of Jesus. So we really want to experience the fullness and, and the fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit. We have to align our lives with the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Today's passage is about preaching the gospel to the whole world. It's Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verse 14. And this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So... In a way, when Jesus is asked by his disciples, well, what's the sign of your, of your coming? What will the sign of your coming be? And he said that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now, many people, including the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, have emphasized this, the, the part about the end coming the return of the King, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, being predicated on the good news of Jesus Christ being proclaimed to all the nations throughout the world. And this is definitely, this is definitely a very important aspect of this, that Jesus' return and the preaching of the good news of the gospel of the kingdom to all nations and to all people groups and every tongue and tribe that this is certainly what will happen before Jesus returns again. And this is one of the most important things. But as I was studying this, I, I don't, I'm not really sure exactly how the Holy Spirit is uh, orchestrating this in my life. But as I was studying this, uh, yesterday's thoughts and thinking on, on Jesus' preaching on what will happen to people who live a life separated from God, who never receive the salvation of God, who never receive Christ as Savior, um, is, is a very staggering, it's a very uh, just stop you in your tracks kind of thought. Because it's saying that there is a day when the end will come. And those who are in Christ, it will be a glorious day. Uh, one 
Puritan theologian said it this way that there's only going to be there'll only be two persons standing before the judgment. The one will be Adam. And the other will be the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how you will spend eternity will be in utter dependence on which of the two Adams you are united to, which of the two Adams you're connected to. And so I I am highly motivated to preach the gospel to anybody and everybody and anywhere thinking I can't wait for Jesus to come back. I'm I'm I would love to see that and to set things right. But I'm also highly motivated because I know what the end means for friends, for family, even strangers who do not know Christ and who die in Adam, the first Adam, who die in their sins. So, one of my uh, favorite teachers of theology is a Scotsman by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. And he was... For a long time, he was pastor of a church in South Carolina, but he also was pastored in Scotland. And he was in a church, pastoring a church in Dundee, Scotland. And he tells the story about how the minister, the founding minister of that church, is a very famous Scotsman by the name of Robert Murray McShane. McShane's memoirs, are some of the most passionate memoirs of devotion and consecration to Jesus. Uh, McShane died very, very young, like 29 years old or so. But in the time that he was in ministry and in the time that he lived, he lived a full, passionate life for Jesus. And Ferguson says that there was a time in 1843 when he preached a sermon, and in his journal he wrote these words about that particular sermon. As I was walking in the fields, the thought came over me with almost overwhelming power that every one of my flock must soon be in heaven or in hell. Oh, how I wish that I had a tongue like thunder that I I might make all hear. Or that I had a frame like iron that I might visit everyone and say, Escape for your life. Sinners, you know little. You little know how I fear that you will lay the blame of your damnation at my door. Interesting words for a young pastor, a young preacher. His, the sense of the burden of the lostness even of his congregation. There was another uh, very famous friend of his by the name of Andrew Bonar. Andrew Bonar and Horatius Bonar were hymn writers. We still sing some of their hymns in the church today. So he met up with Andrew Bonar and he learned, Andrew Bonar had learned that McShane had preached this sermon about his people going, going to hell and laying damnation at the door of their pastor, and he he said to him, uh, 
McShane, did you did you preach that with tears? And I thought that was such a powerful picture is that, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but a lot of people can preach hell. And they sound very condemning. They sound very judgmental. And Bonar is saying, you cannot preach the bad news without having a broken heart for those you're preaching for. Now, the overarching and the, the theme of McShane's life and his ministry, the overarching theme of our life and ministry, is the sheer wonder of the love of the Lord Jesus for lost sinners. But McShane writes, and, and it really touches me today, that he realized that the gospel only produces a full sense of wonder when we have learned why it is so necessary that you accept the gospel and that we become conscious of these terrible realities from which Christ came to save us. It's not an easy thing to do, but we have to have a sense of the awful nature of hell and at the same time have a capacity for wonder of the love of Jesus go hand in hand as we preach the gospel to the to the whole world. And this is what I've learned, and, and, and it was true of these many who have gone before me, is it's not just the preaching of it. It's not just the concepts of it, but the very, the very reality of the, of the wonder of the love of God and the horror of a life apart from God must grip the one who is preaching the gospel to the whole world. Now, the problem is that many of us only see preachers as kind of these professionals, these paid people who speak on Sundays. But, the, but Jesus is saying you are the preacher and your life and your heart and your emotions are the, are the message and how you have grasped his love and how you have grasped this sense of an eternity separated from God is, in a way, how passionately you will preach this good news to the whole world. You know, one of the reasons I, I think this is important is, is I think by nature we resist stretching our mind and our emotions to encompass both of these things. There are some who are wired to really, you know, I, I've had people say to me, you do not, you know, you don't emphasize hell enough. You should you should be making people scared. You should make people afraid. And I've had others who wired in another way who never want to hear about the bad news and they only want to hear about the positive and the good. Now, the, the mistake that many of us make is is thinking somehow that there's a middle ground that you know of 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 hell and heaven and the true balance is not a middle ground but understanding the scope of both and having emotions in terms of both of these completely true themes in some ways you cannot preach the good news of the kingdom without understanding that the end is coming that every person I know, and every person I've never known, every person will stand before the judgment seat of God, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And in that light, 
of the judgment seat of Christ, then we see the wonder of what Christ has done in 2 Corinthians 5, where it says we are new creations and God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. And there is no other new creation in us apart from being in Christ. This should produce in us what even Paul calls a fear of the Lord. Now, this isn't being afraid of the Lord, but it's having a true sense of the weight and the glory and the heaviness of the holiness and the righteousness of our God. And as we have that sense and we have a very real emotional stretching to say, I love the Lord with all my heart, but I also know that He is the Lord of glory. He is the Lord, the righteous one. He's the Lord. He is holy, holy, holy. Then that will open our mouths with gracious boldness to persuade even those that we might fear their disapproval or we might fear that they won't, they won't look at us or think of us the same, but we are so gracious in our boldness that we want to persuade those who would listen and to do as Paul said, to appeal to everyone, anyone we have the opportunity to appeal to them to be reconciled to God. And then to show them clearly from the scriptures why and how this wonderful way of salvation has been made possible by Christ who became sin for us. I mean, what a passage in 2 Corinthians 5 where it includes a new creation, our ministry of reconciliation, but it also explains so clearly that Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. More and more that I talk to people about the gospel and about faith, I see that they don't understand the gospel at all. They really believe Christianity is a morality that judges people on what they do and don't do. And they do not hear us. They do not understand that it really isn't a morality. And that the good news of Jesus Christ is that a righteousness has been provided for us. That we are all so sinful that Christ had to die for us. And that we are all so loved that Christ chose to die for us. But as much as I love that truth, when we are preaching the gospel, we must remember that the end is coming. That's what Jesus said. And it sobers our hearts to know that the end is judgment. One um, comedian, very famous comedian, uh, who is an atheist, I mean, and, and, and he is a devout atheist, but he had a friend who was a devout Christian. And his friend never talked to him about Christ. And he wrote an article and he said, how can you believe in the afterlife you believe in? How can you believe of, about what the end will be and not tell me? How can you believe that and believe that there is a way of salvation and not tell me. Now, he's not saying he's going to believe it. He's not gonna, saying he's going to receive it. He said, it is, it is completely inconsistent, he said, with what you believe about judgment and about the end, and to not tell your friends or your family how to escape 
such a dire end. Think about it with me. I, I said a little bit of this yesterday, but I think it's worth repeating. The unbeliever will experience separation from God. Matthew 8, 8, 12, it says they will be sent outside. They will be sent away from the presence of the Lord. We talked about the, the imagery of a fire that burns. It's also called the outer darkness. Matthew 22 says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It involves this kind of destruction. It's not annihilation, but it is the destruction of everything that makes a human human. Dante, in his Divine Comedy, he says the words inscribed over the entrance to hell are, All hope abandon you here who enter. And the, there's, this, there's this word in the scripture that the end is an everlasting end. I, I, don't, I don't mean to be a downer, but I, just, I don't think that the only reason that we preach the gospel is because we are hope we are thinking that we'll usher in the return of our Lord without also realizing what does this end mean for those who do not know and will not accept or have never heard of Christ? Eternity. Um, one of the Puritans. I know it seems might seem strange, but when I began theology back in the seventies, my whole training and everything were reading the. English Puritans, the Protestant Reformers. And for some reason here in my 60s, my heart and my, my soul has been fed by going back to these, these old preachers and these old writers. Thomas Brooks was one of those, and he said, this word eternity, 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 this word everlasting, 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 this word forever, 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 will even break the hearts of the damned in 10,000 pieces. Oh, that word never, said a poor despairing creature on his deathbed, breaks my heart. Impenitent sinners in hell shall have end without end, death without death, night without day, mourning without mirth, sorrow without solace, and bondage without liberty. The damned shall live as long in hell as God himself shall live in heaven. Ooh. I mean, this is, I, I, I don't know, it just motivates me so much to preach the gospel fearlessly. To proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ because the bad news is that bad. Do you realize we have a vivid picture of the agony of what it means to be separated from God? It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Martin Luther wrote, no man feared death like Jesus. Why is that? Because he faced hell. And it was emotionally intolerable even for Jesus. Think about, think about what we see in the, in the gospel about the description of Christ in the garden and then Christ on the cross. Luke tells us that it was after his prayer time in the garden that the angel strengthened him. But listen what it said. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. That's what Jesus, who understood 
what it would be like to be in hell and to be separated from the very face of God. And Mark has even, even more vivid language. He says, Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled and very sorrowful. The verb translated to be troubled is used in the New Testament only here. Uh, Lightfoot, a scholar not given to flights of exegetical fancy notes, it describes the confused, restless, half-distracted state which is produced by physical derangement or by mental distress as grief, shame, disappointment. This is what Jesus experienced anticipating separation from the Father. And he prayed, Father, let this cup be removed from me. Though his prayers were heard, because his prayers are always heard, the answer was no. He was refused. For there was no other way, a truth that needs to be firmly pressed on our minds, our consciences, and our wills, that there is no other way other than to believe in Jesus and to trust in Jesus. There's no other way of salvation from the end. Because if there had been another way, the Father would have found another way. I love this so much. Jesus is sacrificed for me and for you. That he was willing to endure an eternity in hell so that you could have an eternity in heaven. He cried out, it says, with loud cries and tears. It's not an exaggeration to say that Jesus found his being made sin tasting death, undergoing divine wrath, experiencing hell in his own separation from God to be emotionally, physically, spiritually intolerable. It undid Jesus in the presence of his Father and in the presence of the angels, the holy angels. And it eventually wrung from his soul. I mean, we have no idea how much that agony lasted. It, was, it seems only like hours, but it, it, it actually felt like an eternity. But Jesus, by that time, was tasting the darkness outside. And on the cross, you hear him. Now, there's a lot of, there's a lot of significance to these words that are beyond just the words of the moment, but the words still ring powerfully true. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, I'm just so sick of such a puny gospel being preached. I'm so tired of, you know, anything less than the glory and the wonder and the beauty of God's love and of Jesus' sacrifice. And I'm also thinking it's time for us to stop being so unwilling to understand and to to some degree explain the bad news for which the good news is such good news. Christianity is not about making us better people. It's not about us all of a sudden getting all the power to never have sickness again and never face sorrow again and never face suffering again. Christianity is first and, and, and foremost about Christ who loved you and gave himself for you and what it cost him 
to give himself for you and how completely and utterly he has taken your condemnation, your punishment, your separation on himself so that every promise of God to you is yes and amen. That you're no longer an object of wrath, but rather you are a child, a daughter, a son of the Father. And because Jesus was willing to hear no in the garden, now at the throne he hears nothing but yes as he intercedes for you. At the very heart of the gospel, of the good news of the kingdom, lie heaven and hell. It is the gospel of the one who tasted hell to bring us to heaven. Any lesser emphasis makes for a lesser gospel. But you can never forget, and, and, and this is where our emotional capacity must expand. It is the gospel of God's kindness because it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not just a recognition that there is an end and there is a hell. There must be the recognition and the, the movement to trust in the kindness of God which leads us to repentance. And the kindness of God is shown in how Jesus took hell for us so that he could bring us to heaven. How striking this statement is in a whole passage of divine judgment and its consequences in Romans chapter 2. Paul says, but it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. I want to be a better preacher of the gospel. And I think what happens is that the Holy Spirit has to stretch our capacity mentally, our capacity emotionally. On the one hand, you see the Apostle Paul shedding his tears and grief over the consequences of of the weight of sin, even as he shares the gospel to his hearers' hearts. And he makes clear the destiny to which sin will condemn. But on the other hand, you see the, the emotional capacity of the Apostle Paul to feel tears of joy at the greatness of the salvation which we offer to sinners in Jesus Christ. Here, is that mystery. God justifies the ungodly, but only in Christ. So, my hero, Sinclair Ferguson, he quotes another Scotsman, and he says this, I never preach now without believing that something will happen. In other words, he says, I'm never sharing the good news of the kingdom without believing that something will happen that will last for all eternity. See, this is the faith of the psalmist. This is the faith of the apostles. I believed, and so I spoke. You and I, we also believe, and so we also must speak. And we do it not for our sake, but for the sake of those, because the end will come. Why wouldn't you want to exercise such a powerful ministry? Because when you speak of the gospel, something is happening that will last for all eternity. May God bless your sharing, your preaching. May God bless your emotional and intellectual capacity to embrace both the tears of grief and the tears of joy 
to be able to understand and, and to experience the good news in the context of the bad news. In Jesus' name, the end will come, it says. Amen.